This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Mike Glover. So Mike is a retired Green Beret and CIA contractor. He was actually deployed 15 different times to fight the global war on terror. And so we talk about that quite a bit on this podcast, but he's also the founder and CEO of Fieldcraft Survival. So they teach survival and disaster preparedness training courses, and they provide equipment that aids with that training and everything. But also he's the author of a new book called Prepared, a manual for surviving worst case scenarios. And so in this particular podcast, it's a long one, but we get into a lot of different subject matters. You know, why did he go the military route? Why did he go the army? Why SF? He gave us a bunch of detail, like a crazy amount of detail on his transition from SF to the CIA, but also a story that became kind of famous from Tim Kennedy's book, Scars and Stripes, where he kind of attached himself to Tim Kennedy to where if something went wrong, they were both going to get kicked out of sniper school. He gave a lot of detail that Tim didn't even get into his book. We talk about the military industrial complex and how a lot of uh, guys that fought in the GWAT are now kind of looking back on their time and they kind of have some misgivings about what's going on. But we talk about the book. We talk about why being resilient is a big deal, what we can learn from different tragedies. So like the Virginia Tech shooting, what can we learn from that? We talk about the Las Vegas shooting because a lot of stuff, uh, that mass shooting, the biggest mass shooting in the history of our country, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really add up there. But really in this podcast, we talk about decision-making and pre-deciding that we're going to expose ourselves to things that are going to make us better, that we're going to have more situational awareness, that we're not going to be lazy or arrogant in our planning for the worst case scenarios. We talk about just overall being able to make the decisions. Then we talk about, you know, stuff to have in your EDC, your ideal bug out bag, how you're going to survive in a vehicle. Um, we talk about field craft survival and some of the stuff that they're going to be moving into. And I even asked him uh, about his personal faith because there's a few times in the book he mentioned religion and he, he kind of like accidentally quoted scripture at one point. And so we dig into that a little bit as well. Well, guys, I've I've wanted to have him on the show for a very long time. I was so glad that we were able to work it out. We unfortunately had to move it around because of my voice and you know, all kinds of different things, but we got it all squared away. So guys, I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Mike Glover, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Dude, I'm so excited for this today, but not the least of which, because you came prepared. Look how fancy that shirt is. Where'd you get that shirt? Did you make that one? That's a beautiful shirt. Our shirt. That's y'all's? Okay. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get into Phil Craft here in a second, guys. But if you're not watching this on YouTube, you're missing out. He's flexing and everything. It's just beautiful. But we got Yeah, exactly. But we got to start kind of kind of easy and simple. We need a soft place to land. Obviously, a big part of your story is that you spent a long time in the military. And so for someone who didn't serve like myself, but I grew up in Fort Sill, a lot in Fort Sill. So I've kind of been around that community my whole life. I kind of live, you know, this military type of discipline life but I've never served myself. I always just kind of like to ask, what drew you to the military? Why specifically did you go the army route? Why was, you know, the spec ops community, SF Green Beret, like why'd you end up going that direction? Because again, in our modern time, we don't really have a whole lot of those people that do that anymore. So why'd you end up doing that? Yeah, I come from a military family. So my, my dad was in the army. I was born in Fort Ward, California, lived in Germany where he was, where he was stationed. He actually met my mom when he was stationed overseas in Korea. Um, and his uncle, or my uncle, his brother, was uh, Navy. So there's always this rift between Army yeah. and Navy. And we come from a long line of um, lineage in the military, serving in the Army and the uh, different different services and branches. And so at the time, my cousin, who were a few, few years apart, he had just joined. 
so I always knew that I was going to join the military. I grew up with Full Metal Jacket, uh, mm. all the Vietnam era movies, political or not, you know, Apocalypse Now. My dad, because he was post Vietnam in that in that in between time between the uh, late seventies and the the mid eighties, um, he was into that stuff. So I grew up in that culture mainly because he was into it. And then uh, at a very young age, started playing army and playing war and asking my dad, you know, my, my curiosity was like, who is the best? And I remember my dad telling me Green Berets are the best and my uncle telling me Navy SEALs are the best. And there was already this, this uh, rift between the two. I, I just was not a strong enough swimmer. And I remember that my uncle said to me, who was in the Navy at my grandma's house, hey, the only thing I'll tell you, though, is if you fail buds, you you go needs in the Navy. And so they'll make you anything they want. Right. And I didn't like that idea because I like the idea of being combat arms and then serving the Army. And I didn't want to let my dad down. So that's ultimately, that's why I went to the Army. And he told me one day driving in the car, I was probably 8, 9, 10 years old. He said uh, Green Berets are the best. And that's at that moment, I remember deciding that's what I was going to do. Well, you've talked a lot about, you know, what it means to become a Green Beret and kind of those different things. And so I don't want to belabor the stories that you've talked about uh, a lot, but I like talking about misconceptions, like regardless of what kind of thing people are in. Cause like if you're a celebrity or if you're a, you know, multi-time number one, New York times bestselling author, there's always what the people think is going on. And then there's what's actually going on. So let's talk about misconceptions, just about the spec ops community in general, but then we can specifically get into SF about, what it is that you guys do, what do you not do, what do most people think you do, but they just have no freaking idea. Let's just go there. Yeah, that, you're spot on, man. That's the best question I've ever got asked, probably, because um, certainly, I mean, I have kids on social media telling me about my career. You know, they're, they're like, right. yeah, well, <laughs> he didn't do this or he didn't do that. It's like, I I was there, so I know I did this. You know, right. like, I don't, I, I can actually prove it to you, but I won't because I, I just don't uh, feel the need to. But the biggest misconception in special operations um, is the idea that everybody does unilateral or by themselves direct action raids and all the things, mm. and that Green Berets just train people. And and that is that is I, I'm actually glad that is the idea for most people because technically at one point it used to be classified what Green Berets did and and how they did it. Now it's it's pretty open source. The idea of foreign internal defense is the access and placement to do all the other things that you do. That's the trade craft, the spy craft, whatever you want to call it. And so it, now everybody who's unilateral to stay in the fight has done bilateral. They, they've done foreign internal defense. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I've done for a SMU, a special missions unit, I've I've been the guy training the indigenous forces because nobody else wanted to do it, but I had a green beret background. They're like, Mike, you do that crap. I don't, we don't want to do that. <laughs> and, and so that's the biggest misconception is that green berets just train people. And, and certainly that's the case, but it's by with and through, which means you're there the entire process and you get to kick in the doors and do the, the job. And when the war is declared over, that job is still going, which is why a lot of the unilateral elements, including Ranger Regiment, um, the SMUs have just has said, oh, crap, to stay in the fight, we actually need to learn how to do this. Like, yes, yeah, certainly you do. 
One I think as well, you hear a lot about the language component, but the funny thing about the language component is when you talk to Green Berets, it's always a language that has nothing to do with where they end up being deployed. And so they're learning like Mandarin and they're being deployed to like South America. And so it's like, okay, great. This is fantastic. But obviously, you know, the, the United States government has reasons why they do the things they do. And we'll get more into the U.S. government and the military here in a second. But it, as long as I my research is not failing me, it looks like you did 14 or 15 different deployments. Is that correct? Between SF and the CIA? Yeah, I did 15, 15 deployments between CIA and uh, the Army. I did nine combat rotations and the rest were CIA. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the transition because I know we're basically skipping over a lot of stuff, but we're going to pop into and out of your career throughout this conversation. So there, most people don't understand that there are guys from the spec ops community, whether they were, you know, Delta, SF, SEALs, whatever, Marine Recon, and then the CIA basically recruits them to become contract operators. Uh, and so people don't understand the difference between that and then the things that are, you know, completely separate, the contracting groups that do uh, stuff that's outside of the United States government, but they're still over where you guys are working. So talk to me a little bit about that transition because what some people would say, again, you got, you know, keyboard warriors telling you what about your career. It's like, oh, you couldn't get enough blood working for the U.S. government that you had to move over to the CIA side or you have to move over to the, you know, private contractor side. But tell, talk to me a little bit about that transition. Yeah, a real good question because, you know, a lot of people, again, they just paint a broad brush. Yeah. When you, I mean, when I was in Libya in the military, I was recruited by the CIA. And that's common, especially when you're working with them. I mean, if, if you're a CIA dude and, and it's all, it's mostly word of mouth. I mean, that's how, yeah. that's how the, the building operates, it, it, especially on the paramilitary side. When I was in Libya, I was working with ground branch and ground branch was like, I mean, the guy was like, his name, his name is Chris. And Chris was like, Hey Mike, what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing now in the military? When are you retiring? I'm like, man, I'm a young E8. I'm like a 30 year old E8. I'm like, I'm, I, I'm not retiring. He goes, you got your degree? I'm like, yeah, I just actually finished my bachelor's degree. Well, why don't you come work for us? I'm like, dude, I would love that. Yeah. And so I actually got back from that rotation um, and was transitioning to go into Ground Branch as a paramilitary operations officer, which you can apply, by the way, online at, at CIA.gov. It's not like it's a classified. <laughs> okay. I mean, there's LinkedIn the Ground Branch guys that have paramilitary so it's not like Jason Bourne style where they like snatch you out because you're an orphan or some <laughs> crazy stuff like that. Yeah. It's a lot of people think it's like, it's secretive. It's, it's not secretive actually. There, there are secretive components, but the job isn't. And so when I got recruited, I went through multiple parts of the process to fast track. So I told the guys like, Hey, when I get back, I'll drop my paperwork. We'll do the thing. And as I was literally in Libya, the sequester happened, it, which it, it, people remember back then. I think this is 2011 to 12 time period. It might have been 12 and 13. They they stopped all hiring across the government and and stopped all spending in the government. Yeah. So they hire, they couldn't spend, and they basically put all applications on freeze. So in this interim, I'm waiting, and I told I told the guys because Chris was gone to some other country. I told the recruiter I was working with, I'm like, man, I don't have a job. Yeah. Like I got out of the military to transition into a full-time staff position with a central intelligence agency. And you're telling me now um, we're on hold. So he said, Hey, we have this opportunity, do this. And, and it was GRS, Global Response Staff Office. And there's two sides of contracting, independent and industrial. 
Independent means you work directly for the government. Industrial, you're working for a cutout. And and there's nothing clandestine about the cutout. It just means a subcontracted company that's mm. filling the gap. So Blackwater, Triple Canopy, Sock, all these different companies. As an in, independent, I could do more and have, you know, I, I reported to Langwood and mm. I worked in the building and I got to do all the things and outside the war zone type stuff. That That part of it, is more unique because you just need a little bit more qualification. I think at the time for my position, you needed a minimum of six years in soft. Mm. And so versus, I think, uh, for the industrial side, it was three years, something like that. And and most of the time, I was a sergeant major at the time in the reserves component. I think at the time, um, most all guys that I worked for and the independent side were senior guys. We were all E8s, E9s, and and Dev, SMU, uh, CAG, Green Berets, SEALs, you name it. So having that um, side of it, dude, that was the best job I've ever had. And then I realized after they said, hey, you can now come staff. I think I was in Yemen at the time. I was like, dude, I don't want to be in Ground Branch. And and the entire GWAT, I wanted to be in Ground Branch mm. because Ground Branch was killing bad guys. And then... After this experience of combat and war, when everything died down, they were in the same position I was in the military. They couldn't do anything. And so I was like, well, at least in GRS, I get paid. I get to do all the schools and I get to do missions every single day versus those guys were waking up at 05, training 06 the entire day and then getting told to stand down for any ops. So I was like, man, I I just like it here right now. If anything changes, I'll jump on that side, but right now I'll stay GRS. That's really interesting with the op tempo that you were on because, you know, certain uh, people in certain teams, their op tempo was kind of crazy, but it, there there were times of inconsistency. So you've heard different SEALs, like depending upon where they were stationed or what team they were with, like they didn't know this city was going to pop off versus that city. You know, you, you talk about different, you know, different snipers and, and different things like that. Chris Kyle, it's like, well, he was a great sniper, but he also kind of got lucky with where the action was. But uh, speaking of snipers, I, I didn't, I just thought of this while you were talking a second ago. I remember you being mentioned in our mutual buddy, Tim Kennedy's book scars and stripes fantastic book i named it our book of the year last year but there's a story in that book that is so crazy to me that i like i don't know if he churched it up a little bit or if it really went down i'm just trying to remember off the top of my head but essentially tim kennedy was about to get bounced out of sniper school but he had kind of like a last chance type thing but obviously with most of these missions even in the training you have to have a spotter like the shooter is you know needs a spotter a spotter needs a shooter you know it's this tandem thing but basically the spotter that he picked or that volunteered was going to get the same fate that Tim Kennedy did if he failed or something like that. And so he says, yeah, this guy just kind of calmly raised his hand and that guy was you. You basically volunteered to be his spotter knowing that if something went wrong, you were out of there as well. So if I got any part of the story incorrect, please correct me, but talk to me a little bit about that story. Did that really freaking happen? Like, and if it's, if so, what the hell were you thinking? Yeah, it, it was, it happened and it was real, it was actually more dramatic. I hate to say that because I don't like the idea of that being dramatic and then right. the book painting, but it was actually more dramatic than the book actually talked about Okay, because it, my personal experience in that was w- w- one, me and Tim Kennedy were both from SIF companies. Mm. So a lot of people, again, telling me what we know about our careers don't know what the SIF is. The SIF, which doesn't no longer exist, is a gap fill for SMUs overseas. I, I'll put it that way. Yeah. I, I won't 
details about that, but I'll put it that way. So with that component, the the SIFs are also controlled, command and co- coordinated through JSOC, right? A lot of people think U.S. Special Forces, we're like an, SF, an upgraded SF company. We're more than that. We actually belong to JSOC. And that's the reason SF Command never liked us, because they didn't have operational control of us. And that go, that dates back to the SOT time period of actually the competition between uh, Be- Beckwith, Delta, and, and the SOT component of SF, Blue Light. Those two components competing against each other, when Beckwith got the approval, that became Delta. When, uh, when SF Command didn't get the approval, that became the CRIF. And that worked out that way. And, pa- mm. and the first recognition of that is in Panama when C-37 deployed with JSOC. I mean, they, they, they supported the unit uh, in Panama during the invasion in uh, uh, 1989. So um, when we look at, oh, as early as Grenada in 83, mm. when, we look at, um, when we look at all the things that happened uh, with the, the CRIF companies, we were senior E-7 snipers in the CRIF. So if you're a sniper qualified 18 Bravo weapons guy on a regular ODA, you just have a skill set. You could teach your guys and it's just a skill set. The only designated snipers in SF command on your OER, on your like job description are SIF snipers in the group. So there's only 24 snipers. Technically, there's only 20 because the team leader and the, and the, the uh, warrant typically don't don't do any of the stuff on the ground but technically there's 24 snipers per group that do the job so as a b23 sniper a third group sniper and as and as as uh tim kennedy a seventh group sniper i took that very seriously the week after sniper school i was deploying to combat as a sniper mm-hmm. and this would have been my at the time fourth or fifth rotation as a, a, a in combat so I saw the instructors at the time, and they didn't like Tim Kennedy. They didn't like him because he was an MMA guy. Yeah. He was popular. He was capable. And what I saw was them try, intentionally trying to fail him. So I was there. He, him, and his, him and his partner failed the field shoot, which is a, a big gate in sniper school. Me and my partner passed. So when you fail as a team, you get to pick any sh- spotter you want. Um, so Tim and his partner picked my team. We actually we wound up getting a top sh- shooting team in the entire course when it was all said and done, which just stated that we had the aptitude, right? We had the aptitude mm-hmm. to do well. Tim picked me. My partner had to pick by default my, my partner, Joe. They, they, we, we shot together. Here's where it gets more dramatic. Joe and his partner failed. Mm-hmm. So they were already out, right? They're gone. Tim Kennedy, I think this was his second time in cyber school. If he failed, not only would he have failed the school, for, so for an 18 Bravo, they would be like, yeah, sorry, I don't get the qualification. I can come back next year. Hmm. Well, he wouldn't be able to come back, and he would no longer be a sniper in the Sith. I mean, they would send him back to the assault side. So wow. for me, it was a big deal. So he, he, we go to shoot, and the instructor that I have, his name is, his, I'll just call him Ricky. That's, that's his, um, his uh, first name. So we're shooting and he miscalls the number of shots that he has. So I give Tim a spot. He shoots, he misses. The instructor stands up and he goes, all right, you're done. And I said, uh, no, sir. He's not. And this guy was a civilian. He's not done. He's got one more shot. And he goes, no, he doesn't. 
And Tim turned around off the gun and said, he goes, I have one more shot. And we, I argued with him. Well, if you likely know, or people who know me, I, 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 I weigh right over fucking being criticized for yeah. speaking my So I'm like, he's not fucking wrong. And I stand up and I'm like, listen, go get the NCOIC. Go get the non-commissioned officer in charge and let's hash this out. So this dude comes in and here's what I'll say that he did right. His name was Eric. Um, he shows up and he goes, what's the situation? And he goes, hey, the, the benefit of doubt always goes to the student, mm-hmm. and which is the right answer. Always, yeah. especially yeah. when you're talking about kicking them out or keeping them in. He literally um, gives a box of ammo to this dude, Ricky. Ricky comes up, picks around, and literally hands around in front of the whole class because the whole class is waiting on us. And he says, Mike, you got one round. If he hits it, he passes. If he doesn't, he fails. Are you good? Are you good to do this? And I look around, I'm like, I don't have a choice. I'm like, yeah. I'm doing this. And so everybody's watching this. And and I get chills just thinking about it because it was pretty impactful. He gets down and the, the the instructor could pick any target on the range. And this is you have to you have to range the target by by milling it with a freaking shitty reticle uh inside your scope, like an M3 Alpha Leopold. Um and then you range it, you calculate it, and then you have to shoot it, and you get two shots. We he, we do all the thing, and then at that time of day, because it was late, there was heavy wind calls. I think I gave him a 1.2 or 1.5 mil wind call, which is heavy. Yeah. I, I think it was like 0.5 mils that we didn't have 2.2 mil calls. I called left 1.5. He actually stops and turns around off the gun and says, are you sure? And I said, Tim, never question me on the gun, get back on the gun. And we had like, you know, it's a time, it's like a minute, you get a minute to do all this whole process. So I calmly said, get back on the gun. We get back in glass. You never call a wind call. That's um, a, a past wind call. So if I track a, a current wind call left 1.5, boosh, he sends it. The target that he gave us was the furthest target on the range that had never been touched. And I remember this because it was perfect white contrasted. Mm. left 0.5 is a heavy wind call. It smacks the target right in the middle of the thing. We knew it was good before we heard the shot or the sound. It, and, you know, it wasn't that far. It was like seven, 800 meters, but for three away, that's, that's a, a far shot. He hits it. I remember Timmy standing up and he says he was like nearly did the MC hammer dance or something like that. He, <laughs> he likely did the MC hammer dance. I didn't say a word to anybody. Tim shook my hand. I just walked off. I didn't want to be that guy. I never said anything. But here's what's shitty. The rest of the course, because I helped Tim Kennedy pass sniper school, they tried to get me kicked out. And and wow. they 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 put me in the hardest shots. They made me take two shots on the on the Colex. They put me in charge of the uh culmination. Uh I succeeded, but as a final FU on graduation day, they said, Hey Mike, this is the day before. Hey Mike, you and uh, your partner t- top team. Uh, have a little thing prepared, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I'm not going to graduation. And he said, and the NCIC was like, the hell you are. You're going to graduation. I'm like, no, I'm not. I already cleared it with the sergeant major. I got. It. I have to do all the in-processing for war. This is Friday because I, I deploy on Monday. I said, I don't, I don't need, I'm not going to graduation. And they were so butthurt 
And oh, they, uh, guys from the unit who were buddies of mine told me they didn't even mention our names that we got top shot at the very end because they were so butthurt. But I was like, fuck them. I was like, there's a priority here and it's going to war. Well, that's a certain level of pettiness that, uh, you know, guys on that side can kind of easily fall into. But yeah, you're, you're right. That is way more dramatic than how Tim described. <laughs> and it was already dramatic in his book. But, but there's even subtleties in your story there, Mike. Like at multiple times, at least twice you mentioned, he had to, you know, release his cheek cheek weld like he's on the gun and like if you if you come off off the gun like you've you've got to re-cheek you got to do a whole lot of extra things and i'm speaking from like oh i did one weekend sniper course but for guys that are out there that are serious shooters that's not an insignificant thing that you come off the, the gun to basically ask a question or something like that so i appreciate you giving us the detail on that story but I'd be remiss before we get into your book. I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this because I have a lot of friends uh, from the spec ops community. I've had these kind of deeper level conversations with them. Um, and it started with the pullout from Afghanistan, the absolute travesty that that was. And then you start looking at all these different generals that continue to fail upwards. You have this discussion of the military industrial complex, whatever in the world that means. But then you have these guys that were forward operators. So they, they weren't hanging out on base. And I'm not saying those guys aren't important, but these were guys that were constantly outside the wire, uh, you know, constantly putting their life on the line, guys that lost buddies, guys that lost arms, guys that lost blood. And if, if you were to nail them down to a, a discussion point, they would say that there is some regret there. Not that they killed bad guys that needed to be killed, but it's like, look at what I gave up and look at what the country gained. How much ground did the country gain? And it's like, it's not like World War One, World War Two, where you just kind of threw everybody into a meat grinder because we didn't have the technology to fight any other way. But what I guess are, are your thoughts? Because you spent almost two decades of your life fighting the GWAT and, and trying to kill bad guys and do all those things. And now that you've had a few years to just kind of rest and relax and look at the, the, the canvas that was painted, it's not always the best picture. So I just wonder what your thoughts are there. Yeah, it's a difficult one. I mean, I, I didn't have many rotations. I had two rotations to Afghanistan. And they were very significant as an experience for me. Um, but they, they, I mean, there's guys who spent their whole entire careers there. I mean, there's guys who did five, six, seven, eight rips. And it's unfortunate because I, I've lost a lot of friends there. And I lost friends there when I was there in Afghanistan for both those rotations. And ultimately what I would say is the job is the job. The job is always going to be the job. A lot of the things that are outside of our control that, ended up being this circumstance in the first place, um, we had nothing to do with. If guys did their job and they did it morally and ethically and legally and they, they were good with that, they fought the fight, they should be proud of that. And, and I'm proud of my experiences there doing the thing. Um, out, outside of that, also the political components that affect war have always been an issue. Bureaucrats affecting conflict and war have always been an issue. This this especially was the case in Vietnam, where when we decided to pull out, I mean, as noted in Jack Carr's book, Only the Dead, he talks about some of the highlights of that. We left behind thousands of missing in action. Yeah. Can you imagine right now, like Tim Kennedy and Chad, they go do Save Our Allies and they do all this stuff. I was on backside support helping them, did nothing compared to what those guys did. But can you imagine that we pull out of the GWAT and we left thousands of Americans behind that were trapped behind enemy lines, MIA. I mean, that's literally kind of what we did in a different form factor. Right. And 
again, as we looked at Vietnam, because we don't have the appetite of the country, we forget about it. And, and that's what's sad. Always keep those memories. Always remember what you fought for and be proud of those experiences, which I am again. Um, but but a lot of that stuff, you don't have control. What we can can do, like Tim, like Chad, like Nick, like these guys have done, we can help in different ways when the official war is uh, over with. Um, whether that's nonprofit work or helping people who are disaffected or helping veterans who are having yeah. a hard time dealing with that, there are ways to help each other. Um, I'm bummed out by the whole experience, by the whole thing, but I'm proud of my service and my guys' service, uh, all the people that I serve with service on the ground because um, that is where I spent most of my time on the ground. Um, who cares about the shit that you can't control? Well, yeah, control the controllables. That's an easy, uh, it's an easy thing to say, hard thing to to do. But yeah, like Nick Palmasano, Chad Robichaud, you know, Tim Kennedy, a lot of those guys, like the service didn't end you know, those types of things and, and whether they're in or out or reserves or something like that doesn't change. But that would be my encouragement to guys listening. We do have a lot of uh, active duty military and retired military that listen to this is like, you don't always understand, but again, control the controllables. Like if you were sent to a, you know, a forward operating base and you were there to, to do work and you did the work that you did, you honored your position. And for, for those Christians out there, it's like, you're, you're honoring the work that was set before you and you were working as unto the Lord, regardless of the outcome. So I do want to transition now into a book that you wrote that just released this year. So congratulations. This is a book called prepared. And now normally Mike, I'm able to grab the book of the author and like show it on screen because I got it beforehand. But dadgummit, I didn't get a book. I didn't get the fancy bag it came in. I didn't get a PDF version that's like paper clipped at the top. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show Jack's book on screen. And because apparently Jack's got his crap together. So this is Jack Carr's latest book, Only the Dead. But I do want to say that because Jack actually wrote the foreword of your book. It's a fantastic forward, but there's there's a quote in there that I think kind of encapsulates why you wrote the book. So let me read the quote here. In the Million Dialogue of his history of the Peloponnesian War, the Athenian historian Thucydides characterized hope as a dangerous comforter. In, in modern military and intelligence parlance, the ancient Greek general's text translates as, quote, hope is not a course of action, unquote. The lesson is one as old as time. Be prepared. So why'd you write the book? Yeah, I, I wanted to write the book to change the conversation and the dialogue of preparedness or the idea of prepping uh, in modern civilization, in modern society. Mm -hmm. A lot of us are still hung up on this tinfoil hat idea, and we think preparedness is a paranoid philosophy. And yeah. that, that bothers me because um, coming from a community that lived a prepared lifestyle of planning, paying attention to detail, uh, contingencies, uh, communication, uh, being physically fit, being mentally resilient, all these things that we took for granted because we kind of lived that life allowed us to have mission success, allowed us to statistically come out on top. So I look at civilians and, and, and institutions and organizations, there's nothing that prepares us outside of the church preparing your mind for conflict, um, nothing that prepares us for the worst case scenario. And I say, you know, it's a manual for surviving worst case scenarios, but I'll preface this by saying worst case scenarios is your worst day, right? You getting that your mom has terminal cancer is a worst day. You getting in an accident in your backyard, um, is your worst day. 
So being prepared for that moment, that eventuality, by the way, because it's going to happen to you and everybody that you love, um, is how I wanted to kind of write this book and make it digestible for people who, again, think it's a radical idea. Well, so uh, I would like to to give you kudos on the book because the book checks several boxes. So if you're the person that loves military stories, military narrative, that's in this book. If you're someone that like, oh, I could I could deal with all, without all the poetic stuff, just give me the stuff I need to know. What's the stuff I need to buy? What's the stuff I need in my bug out bag? Like all that's in this book and it's not, you know, a tome. It's not 800 pages. It's still a brief and cogent, which I really appreciate. But in chapter one, it, the, that chapter is called The Resilient Mindset. Now I keyed in on the word resilient because on Daunted Life since 2016 when we launched, we're here to equip men to push back darkness. And we do that by, by, by providing content that uh, forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. And I always like to draw a big line between strength and resilience because strength always wanes with time. If you're the world's strongest man today and you compete, by tomorrow your body's busted up and broken down. You're not the world's strongest man that day. You need time to recover. That's what resilience is. And so that's how we use the term resilience here at Undaunted Life. But for you, why choose that word? Because strength is an easier word for people to just kind of like accept and absorb into their everyday life. Resilience is a little bit different though. Yeah, I think I think resilience is like what you said. It's the idea of bouncing back, but it's a constant cycle. And what I've discovered in, in really being part of this experience and prepared as myself and teaching it and mentoring people and then my own military experiences is is a lot of us focus on resilience in that worst case like you know you get hit with a baseball bat and that could be figurative it could be literal and and how do you manage that or you're in the gunfight you know and 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 you're trying to get through the moments but i i take that and set it aside and i i think resilience in low-grade stress especially is built in day-to-day interactions and behaviors. Mm-hmm. And and when I see people who are so focused on, again, the worst case, and they do these epic exposures to, you know, work from workouts of the day to a uh, base jumping, all of these things are certainly going to build resilience and build all these mechanisms inside of you. But I think back to ranger school as a private and trying to survive moment to moment, like I'm so hungry, I can't... I can't take this anymore. I'm tired. I want to sleep. And then how that helped me build um, all these benefactors from resilience and, and the nuance, like the nuances of our everyday lives where you get up and you're a single mom and you got to, you got to pack the kids out for the day and take them to uh, childcare, take them to school and then go work your nine to five and come back and do it all over again, five days a week. That's building resilience every single day. And that's just as important as the sexy worst case scenario that's very mm-hmm. dynamic. And so I, I think that focus is why I chose the word. And ultimately, resilience out of all the things leads to adaptability. And adaptability is the number one characteristic of surviving any scenario. Um, it's not where you come from. It's not your wealth bracket. It's not any of those things. It's your ability to adapt. And, and some of the most adaptable people are often the most not talked about people. One of the key there, Mike, is exposure. And so that's a quote from earlier in your book. I want to read it here. The one thing that stabilizes every curve that neutralizes or equalizes the impact of complexity, familiarity, and confidence is experience. Exposure. The less stress and discomfort you've experienced in your life, the greater the likelihood that you may shut down in a crisis. That's called fragility. 
And so for a lot of guys, and you talk about this in the book, this is the easiest time to be alive, right? We don't have to go out and kill our food. We can go to a store and our food has been killed for us and wrapped in cellophane and a price tag has been, been put on it, right? But we have these times where I, the way I describe it to people is you need to make deposits and that resilience bank account every day because you never know when you're going to need to make a withdrawal. It, you, maybe you get sick and your body isn't very resilient to fight fight something off. Maybe you get injured and you're not very resilient. Maybe just something befalls you mentally and you're so weak because your entire world has been bubble wrapped. So so talk to me a little bit about this because I've, I've talked about town blue in the face, Mike, trying to get that, do something hard, like go ruck when it's hot outside, go do jujitsu, go do something that you've never done before to just try to like shake yourself out because why do I go run with no shirt on when it's really, really, really cold outside? Because what if I get in a car accident and I tear my clothes and I'm in the middle of nowhere and it's snowing and I've never been in that position before? Here I am trying to survive while trying to work through the mental handicaps of, oh, I've never been here before. As opposed to, yeah, I know what cold is. This really, really sucks, but I need to, I need to live or I need to live so someone else can live. So talk a little bit about that exposure element that so many people just avoid. Yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, comfort leads to complacency, which is why we're in the crisis that we're in, in the first place. And, and, and that's a good problem to have ultimately because freedom, which is a huge benefit in this country leads to that complacency. But if we're aware, if we're self-aware, if we're aware as a society, Mm -hmm. then that, that lends us to doing things deliberately to keep us more resilient uh, in that comfort. I mean, there, there's a, it's definitely not a negative thing, but it can, can lead to negative outcomes, especially when impacted. And you look at, um, you know, the U.S. Army's goals in recruiting this year were 65,000. They, they missed that by 25%. And a lot of people are like, oh, nobody wants to serve. It's like, no, that's not ultimately the issue. The, the ultimate issue is the the number of recruits the army is having to turn away because they're out of shape. Yep. Um their bat their their body mass index, their body fat is too much. Um their aptitude isn't good enough. I mean, we have one of the worst education across the board um than anybody in the in the entire world when you look at top, you know, 5% of the of the countries that are crushing it uh, economically. And so South Korea, Japan, um, all the Asian countries mostly are kicking our butts. And so when we, when we look at the idea of exposure, uh, when I grew up in the military, I remember, I remember being in the Q course and the qualification course is a part of the special forces pipeline, the green beret pipeline. And I can't remember what I was in. I was maybe in small unit tactics or something. And we had the opportunity to do PT on our own. And there was an operator from CAG who was very well known at the time there wasn't really a lot of war going on because this is 0203. So at the time there wasn't many guys who had combat patches on their shoulder. Mm. This guy had a combat patch from Delta. He was also a former team leader in Delta. Mm. And he was also somebody who was well-known. I mean, he had all the badges, free fall jump master, all the stuff, SF Ranger. I mean, he was getting his SF tab, but Ranger, all the things. And he would go out. His name was Doug Taylor. He's, he's, he's retired now, but many guys in the community know this guy's name. So he was an enlisted guy, became an officer, and he, now he was an officer. And so everybody's like, oh, look at that officer. And then they're like, mm. oh, that's, that's Doug Taylor. He's like, oh, crap. And the big thing with him is he used to go out in the middle of uh, the afternoon, about three or four in the afternoon, and would run at the peak heat of the day. Yeah. And 
everybody was everybody around me thought he was crazy mm -hmm. and not understanding the science or how exposure works i was like why is he doing that so we started doing it and it's like well why is he doing that who who the hell knows but he's better than us let's do that together yeah and so when you look at um exposure now 20 years ago it was philosophy it was like that guy's doing it maybe we could do it now there are protocols i mean you look at the the popularity of of a uh, hot sauna and cold plunge these things don't just have a psychological benefit they have a physiological benefit at, at making us better so you know I, I like guys and when i associate exposure to experience i get a lot of guys who say mike i'm going to be like you and i say well here's some steps that you could do to be like me and then a month later they're checked out right they start the technical company and then six months later a year down the road they're out yeah. i was like Guys, I had 20 years before I showed up on day one. So if you if you look at Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outlier, the, the key takeaway from that book is people don't have gifts. They have work and commitment. Yeah. And, and they're willing to be consistent in that work ethic and commit what he, he quotes as 10,000 hours, which, by the way, is a decade to the craft. Yeah. Then you potentially could be the person who's at the top or whatever. So uh, I just spent some time with Cameron Haynes closing this out. Cameron Haynes is a stud. Why is Cameron Haynes a stud? Well, because of his work ethic. But also, even at the level that he's at, which is elite athlete, elite archery and bow hunter, he is willing to still commit himself to exposing himself to weakness and challenges, which makes him better. I certainly was exposed to my weakness carrying that 80-pound sandbag up that hill. Yeah. Um, but I was also like, Oh, shooting a bow. Easy. I do that. Uh, lifting weights. Easy. I do that. But how many of us are willing to go into the gym and set down the chest and tries and try something different because it's going to make us better? Most people aren't. And I encourage you to be that guy. Well, and that's the, what I tell people all the time is, okay, so you're a golfer. You should try to do jujitsu. Okay. If you're a jujitsu guy, you need to go because jujitsu cardio is different than triathlete cardio because when a triathlete comes in and rolls, they die. When a <laughs> jujitsu guy goes out and tries to run, bike and swim, he dies. But <clears throat> the, the whole idea is I'm not sure there's something that has more diminishing returns on a daily basis than exercise. And what I mean by that is if you work out on January 1st, right, you work out for four hours, you just, you just really light it up. That doesn't last you the rest of the year. It doesn't last you the rest of the week. You have to make a daily commitment to it. And so like a guy like Cam Haynes, he did that for decades before anyone knew his name, before Joe Rogan discovered him and before he became this big name and best-selling author and all the different things. It's just who he was. Like the other day I was outside carrying a hundred pound a sandbag when it was close to 100 degrees here in Oklahoma. It's not the number one thing I wanted to do with my time, but it's like, look, hopefully later on this year, I'm carrying a quarter section of an elk on my back trying to get it out so I can feed myself and my family for a year. And if that's the first time I'm carrying weight like that, it could be a problem for me. But what that leads to is a discussion that you talk about in the book. There's this kind of witch's brew of like laziness and, and arrogance when it comes to overall planning. So like on the laziness side, you have guys that 
if they shoot at the range, they will only shoot during perfect conditions. So 75 degrees, a little bit of wind. So it's a nice breeze. Um, you know, heart rate is normal. They, they don't ever jack their heart rate up and then try to shoot guys that only camp when it's beautiful out and not raining guys that just avoid complicating factors to what they're doing. But uh, in your chapter called planning, you actually have a section header that's that I loved. It's arrogance and willful ignorance are your enemy. And so that laziness comes from an area of arrogance or like, yeah, I'm just not really going to pay attention to what would happen if I had to run a hundred meters before shooting. You see these, these uh, police officer, you know, uh, cam videos where they're trying to run to a threat and they can run for about 70 or 80 yards before they, uh, uh, and you can just hear them breathing. And it's like, man, there's no way this shot's going to be on target and the shots shots from far away. They don't have their AR. So they're trying to stabilize, you know, their, their, their duty weapon, their pistol. And it's like, man, it comes from an area of laziness, arrogance, and willful ignorance. So talk to me a little bit about that, not only for the civilian world, but also for the operator world or the first responder world to where it's just like, look, your level of unpreparedness can not only lead to the ending of your life, but for the people you purportedly raised your hand and swore that you would protect. Yeah, it, it goes hand in hand with exposure um, because you that's the first component is kind of getting off your butt mm. and, and not being lazy. I, I think the biggest issue that I see across every single industry, including in the civilian space and civilian world is the idea is it's never going to happen to me. Yeah. Right. And, and we, we train for best case scenarios, not worst case scenarios. I've always used the term or the phraseology worst case scenario and the reason I do is because when you train for the worst case, it kind of handles everything in between. You know, yeah. it's like it's a scaled down version of it handled best case of it handled. And so most people train and cater to the best case scenario because they they want to be comfortable all the time. So um, like when I tell when I teach active shooting uh, protocol to police officers, they'll follow the protocol of what normally happens in routine. And then I said, and I, you know, I, this happens to SWAT teams, especially I say, guys, um, why do you do it this way? And they go, well, why it's, it's sound ta tactically. Mm. And I said, well, let me give you one scenario. Let me put the bad guy in this position with this gun. And they would, they would immediately default to, well, that's never happened. Ah. And I said, well, that you do realize that's what you're training for. You're not training for the things that, I mean, if, if everything happened in routine and, and complacency and, and comfort, then you would just walk in the room. You don't even need a gun Yeah. because 99% yeah. of the rooms that you go in don't have guns. And then if you put a gun in a guy's hand and then you've experienced that 10 times a year and that guy never shoots, you're not training for that. You're training for the one guy that does shoot. So if I set this guy up this way and then you do it this way, to negate that one guy who's holding the gun in this position, don't you think you're covering down in the, everything in between? They're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. I'm like, okay, well, then let's not do this and let's do this instead. Um, I, I have guys all the time who, in active shooting protocol training, they, they go down the hallway and they clear inside the room with their eyes. And I say, why are you looking in that room? I'm like, well, I'm clearing it. I'm like, so what are you clearing it for? Uh, what? Well, I'm clearing it for a threat. If, of course you're clearing it for threats because you're looking for the active shooter. What if the threat is holding a gun pointing at you? Well, then I just turn the gun. I'm like, no, no, no. Then you're dead. You yeah, just yeah. witnessed yourself being killed because it's too late. So why don't you look in the room and then 
move your gun to where the potential threat would be so you have a shooting solution as soon as you identify the threat. They're like, oh crap. So a lot of the things, a lot of the things I, I fear that we do is unintentional. And I say fear because it's worse because unintentional just means we're not paying attention yeah. and we're not paying attention. Um, and we're living this comfortable, complacent life. That's when the worst case scenario happens. And that's when disaster strikes, right? The, the one shooting in the, in the, uh, department that now the guy writes a book, if he survives and it changed the entire protocol for the department for, for the next century, we are thinking ahead in preparedness and saying, Hey, you could proactively be engaged, um, take some preventative measures to be better. And that way, if it does happen, because it, likely it will happen, by the way, um, then you'll be prepared. And, and that's just the protocol, because I, I think a lot of people, because they live a comfortable, complacent life, it's like, well, nothing's happening to me until it does. And they were not prepared. Well, I think a lot of what you discussed there, Mike, really can be wrapped up in a discussion about situational awareness, which you do talk about in the book. And guys, this is probably a good time for me to mention, we are barely scraping the surface of the contents of the book prepared. So it is in the show notes. You should get it. There's a lot of stuff in there, but get your highlighter ready because there's a bunch of crap you thought you knew that you just don't know. But when you talk about situational awareness, you know, I've seen videos of people that are getting mugged that don't even know they're getting mugged yet because their, their face is in their phone. They've got a gun or a, a knife pointed at them and they're looking at their phone and then it's like, oh, oh my gosh. And then, so they're, they're not prepared for that situation. I think another point in the book, he talked about even how you carry yourself as a deterrent. So yeah, if you're six foot five, 400 pounds and yoked out of your mind, no one's probably going to try and steal from you. But also if you're always demure or navel gazing, or you're not looking around paying attention, you're also making yourself a, a, a target as well. But this goes back to something you said earlier in the interview, people think that if you're prepared, that you're paranoid, you're constantly looking around, that if you carry a firearm on you, that you're constantly looking around the parking lot to see if you need to shoot. But it, it's really more so about situational awareness because it's like, look, if you know where the exits are, if someone starts shooting, you know where you can get your family out quickly. If there's a fire, you can get them out quickly. If you just survey the, the environment around you, it's, it's just what you just said, Mike, about someone's clearing a room with their eyes and not with their firearm pointed in that direction. That split second decision is enough for them to lose their top knot. And so in this type of scenario, you just looking around and getting a survey of the land being situationally aware could be the difference between you saving yourself and not saving yourself, but also for the people that are around you. So talk to me a little bit about what we can do to make ourselves more situationally aware because, you know, you talk about the best way to, to learn to look is to hunt. And I know that when I get back from a hunting trip, there could be a squirrel that moves a quarter mile away from me while I'm walking my dog. You know, it's like my eyes are trained for that because you're looking for the slightest movement in, in the, you know, the landscape. So just talk to me in general about situational awareness. Yeah, a lot of people the term situational awareness, some people are turned off by it because they're like, oh, this is some military stuff. And what I really mean is paying attention. And most of us, because the convenience that the cell phone or the comfort that the cell phone has given us has pulled us away from our environments that make us more likely to not pay attention and more likely to become a victim of crime of circumstance. You know, uh, uh, the, the statistic now is 40,000 plus Americans die in, in vehicle accidents every single year. What's even more alarming than that is 6 million accidents, vehicle accidents happen every single year, uh, 2 million of which people are injured. And you look at that and you go, man, that's, that's a lot of people 
That's a lot of accidents and a lot of death every every single day. Most of that's associated with not paying attention. Right. And so when when we talk about paying attention, the reason it's so important to pay attention is because the world around us requires that we pay attention so we don't get killed or so we don't become a victim. Um, and when you take it from the other side, bad guys look at the exact circumstance that you're in for exploitable opportunities. Mm. So if you're at a gas station, it's routine. If you're walking on your cell phone, uh, if you're at an ATM staring into the screen, you're exploitable because you're not paying attention. And, and so bad guys take advantage of that. What I generally say is paying attention just requires you, one, put the cell phone away. That cell phone is a complete distraction from the, the world around you. Two, I am not paranoid and looking at every single thing that's going on in my environment as a potential threat. All we're looking for is spikes in the pattern. I'm looking for anomalies. Like like you said with the, the squirrel. If you're a hunter and you're staring into a, you know, an ocular lens of a 40 power uh, spotting scope and looking at the ridgeline, you're not assessing and analyzing every single bit of that information as you scan across. What you're looking for is things that spike the pattern, things yep. outside of the pattern. And when you see those, that means you just pay more attention. You just refine your focus. So I give the example like, you know, if it's, it's uh, December 4th, and you hear what sounds like fireworks and it's and it near it sounds like firecrackers going off and you're like well wait it's not July 4th it's December 4th well that could be a spike in the pattern mm. that needs more attention that could mean get off the x create as much distance and time there has to be an action and most of our protocol this is by the way a primal protocol in nature something startles you you, you immediately pay attention. You have a, a flinch response typically. You pay attention, then you make a decision, and that might be fight or, fighting or fleeing. Now we do it, we, we, we get a flinch response, we pay attention, and then we want to get our cell phone out and record what's going on. So what I say is like, you know, you go into an establishment and you enter the front door, you scan from left to right. You, that doesn't have to be a long time. Mm -hmm. When you see a spike, you pay more attention to the spike, and then you make a decision to do whatever you're going to do. Hey, I need to sit away from this, or hey, honey, let's go to a different restaurant, or hey, honey, let's go to a different gas station, or hey, honey, let's not use the ATM at two in the morning. These are This is like real basic stuff that we used to do when we didn't have the distraction in our hand, but now, because we do, we're not paying attention at all. Well, Mike, you, you're bringing up a lot of good things there, but you're also talking about making decisions, but a lot of it is about pre-decisions. So I've, I've mentioned this on my show before. I'll give the truncated version, but there was a situation last year where I thought I was going to have to pull my pistol and use it in a restaurant because a man was walking. I could, you know, I positioned myself towards the front door. It's a small kind of cramped restaurant, middle of the day for lunch. And he's kind of walking back and forth <clears throat> on the windows uh, outside and something's just off about him, right? So just spike in the pattern. He's wearing like uh, a Carhartt coveralls, but he had a really, really nice jacket over it. And it was just in really nice sunglasses. It was just odd. And then he came up to the window, looking through the window and he, he makes a, like a gun out of his fingers and he starts shooting people through the window, like with his fingers. <clears throat> and my buddy's talking to me and I go, shut up, shut up, shut up. I need, I shut up. I think, I think something's about to go down. Guy walks in, he grabs a menu and he's, 
I can see through his glasses. He's not looking at the menu. He's looking around, but he's pretending like he's looking at the menu. No one's paying attention to this guy. And he's got a bag. He's got about seven pockets on him because, you know, Carhartt coveralls. And I'm like, I've, at this point, I've got my hand on, on my pistol. And it's like, if he reaches in, I got to be ready. And I got to make sure I know what's behind him just in case I miss. Like I'm running these scenarios all through my head, but you know what? I wasn't deciding at that point, Mike, whether or not I could take a life. Because I had spent time and prayer and contemplation in pre-deciding that in order to protect image bearers of God from the wolf, I would act as a sheepdog to try and stop someone from taking innocent life or hurting innocent life. The problem that I see, Mike, and, and you're way more into this, so I'm, I'm really, really anxious to hear your, your, question, your answer to this. You have a lot of people that buy guns. They've got all kinds of firearms. You got guys that like to go to the range. They like to shoot. You got guys that like to carry. You got guys that like to tell you they're carrying. They got guys that are wearing outside the waistband, the whole nine. And these are people that have not pre-decided whether or not they can take a life. And in that moment, when seconds count, split seconds count even, they're having to have that spiritual conversation with themselves about whether or not they can do this. And so that that pistol that's on their on their waistband it might as well be a rock or, or a pencil or something like that. So talk to me a little bit in your, your chapter called decision point is great. You get into a lot of these types of things and, you know, going through mental blocks and being good at decision-making and reminding yourself of all that. But talk to me a little bit about how pre-decision works into making decisions just in general. Yeah. Pre-decision, I break down into what's called mental modeling. I mean, that's basically a, a free rehearsal. It's, a, it's really how our brain works when we're trying to get ahead of something specifically that's going to be dangerous. I mean, you, you think about um, uh, when we actually do it or when we actually use it in, in modern society, it typically is associated with something dangerous, but we do it every single day in all the things that we do and all the actions we do. I break it down into two things, scripts and models. The script is the action specifically that you train, that you apply. And, and the model is the environment that that script is being acted in. So when somebody trains on a flat range shooting paper and still, what they don't understand is what's missing in that is the cognitive component, which, by the way, features characteristics of moral, ethical, and legal justification. So when you're not thinking about something and you're just acting, you, you, don't, you don't think about those things. But a gunfight would include both of those things, especially in the, in the decision point and the lead up to using the script or the action where you're not really thinking about anything. You're just implementing or executing an action. Like when you're brushing your teeth, um, you brush your teeth in the background and now you have the ability to think while you're brushing your teeth. You're watching the news, taking in information, brushing your teeth. And so it's similar to that where you might be in a situation where you have a lead up and you have time because there's a potential, in your case, imminent threat where he likely can become a threat, but he's not immediate, or a threat becomes immediate, and then you have to react, react immediately. So when we look at this, it's contemplation, and it, it has everything to do with your ability to make a decision. What's, what's crazy about making decisions is it's just not about weighing decision versus indecision. It's weighing decision too soon or too extreme um, or no decision at all. 
Because what I'll get is I'll get guys who have trained on a flat range executing the script. I put them into a decision to use deadly force and they immediately react, mm -hmm. except it's a bad shoot. And I'm like, you know, the, the classic scenario is the spouse and the husband. They're walking together. The person's trying to get into her space. He's acting as the protector or the defender and he gets in between them. He go, the other guy goes to reach for his spouse and he guns him down. And the guy typically who guns him down, who reacts, is like, yeah, I did what I had to do. Like, you realize maybe morally and ethically in your own head, you thought that was good, but you do realize you're going to prison for the rest of your life. Like, what do you mean? And then you look back at all the students, you say, hey, by a show of hands, who would here as a juror would convict him of murder and send him to prison for the rest of life? And everybody raises their hands. You're like, oh, well, what did I do wrong? Well, you weren't thinking at all. You literally were defaulting to the script that you practice again and again because you've fallen in love with this virtue persona of shooting paper and steel, of killing bad guys, except you never actually thought about, if you were put in that situation, preemptively what you would actually think about and what you would actually do at the moment that was required. And that is a big, that is a big issue across the board in the tactical space. Because everybody wants to virtue signal the thing, the tool, and then their ability to use the tool. But that would be like the difference between, you know, being a logger and being somebody who cuts, you know, sticks in my backyard and takes pictures with a chainsaw. There's a massive difference. One, there's no stress. Two, there's no danger. Uh, and three, it, it's pretty easy to use the tool uh, under comfortable circumstances, but it's very difficult to use a tool under difficult circumstances. So th there's so much there because I think about, I was thinking about jujitsu as you were talking and you kind of know this. I was talking to some guys yesterday that have never trained and they're like, yeah, I think I would want to like maybe watch some videos first before I went. And it's like, look, you can't teach a kid to ride a bike at a seminar and you're not going to get good at jujitsu by watching YouTube videos. It's just not going to work out for you. But yeah, the more you train jujitsu, because I'm about six years in, I'm a purple belt, <clears throat> jujitsu slows down. And so when you roll with these white belts and they're freaking out and they're tense and they're all that, it's because everything's so fast. The decisions that they need to make are coming at them so fast that they can't even process them, put them in the right categories, and then much less make a move. And I've got a good uh, buddy that was, uh, he was development group, Eddie Penny. Um, he was really good at CQB because he was he was able to slow everything down to where it was kind of flow state when he was moving through the kill house or something like that. Everything was flow state, but most of us that we don't expose ourselves to those things to where we even have to make those decisions. But yeah, we're really, really good at pinging steel, but, but you're right. We're not put in a scenario to where, okay, it's not steel now. It's, you know, basically a human water balloon with organs and bones. And if you shoot them, there are literal real world consequences, even if it's a justified shoot, depending upon the state that you're in, you could have a justified shoot and, you know, you're going to be under litigation and stuff for two years, just trying to basically get yourself out of trouble. So we don't have time to really get into all of that. I do want to transition into something that was interesting about your book. Um, you really described the Virginia Tech shooting that happened on campus in a lot of detail. And for a lot of us, you know, we've kind of forgotten that because there's been a lot more shootings. There's been, you know, Donald Trump's been president since then. So there's stuff that people are distracted by. But what I've noticed, Mike, and I'm sure you have as well, with many tragedies, especially mass shootings, we're, all of us, too busy running to our sides of the gun debate to absorb or take any lessons from what exactly happened. So it's just, 
guns are fine, Second Amendment, or guns are the devil, they're literally killing people. But you spend time in the book detailing what exactly happened, the the different players involved in, in what was happening, and some takeaways. So just in general, I don't want to spoil it for anyone that hasn't read the book yet. What are some of the takeaways for us from that incident that could help us just in general with other similar incidences? Yeah, I think the biggest one is we have the ability in us to quit and not just quit like freeze. That's that's uh, typically associated with a fight or flight or freeze response, which is very, very much so sympathetic, meaning it's a part of our nervous system protocol for the mobilization tactic in survival. But on the other side of that, the flip side of that coin, there's a mechanism in us, which is hypo arousal to quit, to stop, to play possum. And and when somebody, like when, when a possum plays possum, it just doesn't say, I'm going to play possum, and then it, it, it pretends to be dead. What it does is physiological and biological as a me- mechanism in survival, it does a whole bunch of things, including putting opiates in its body to numb it so it doesn't move, um, to secrete <laughs> foul stenches so it smells like a dead animal, all in the benefit of surviving. You as a human being have that same protocol in a way inside of you, which means if you do that because of the trauma, um, most scientists believe that it has to, do, has to do with the disassociation of the memory and the trauma that you're exposed to. One, you're not thinking clearly. Two, the opiates that are in your body numb you, and they numb you to make something, even the transition from life to death easier but also to immobilize the, the the physical body. I've seen that in real life, in combat. I've also seen it on in study, and I've never seen anybody talk about it, especially tactical guys who teach all these different protocols. Why would that be important? Well, if you meet a trigger in your psyche, this could be your physical state, and you can't fight anymore. And, and you do hide under a desk and, and then you do line up to be potentially killed because you are not going to be in a fight or flight response to fight at all. So I think systemically in our society, we are breeding people, one, not to understand this, but two, not to be fighters, uh, even as a protocol of run, hide and fight, which I absolutely think is the worst protocol we could ever teach anybody, especially children who are depending, depending and leaning on specific instruction, which is run. Where are you running? Hide. How are you hiding? Because I know as a kid, I know kids in hide and seek hide into positions where you can't see them and they get small. Is that setting them up for fight? No, it's not at all. So I think I think all the active shootings um, that I've seen, especially Virginia Tech, lead me to believe that as a society, without the tool, without the gun, we are not prepared for conflict at all. And if if all, if all the students would have done what a few did in fighting that active shooter who had one pistol, mm. uh, despite him killing 33 innocent people, 31 in that building specifically, 90% of which he shot in the head, which is tragic, then we would have had a different outcome. You know, when you see what I, I tragically um, have track and study active shootings as part of what I do for a living. When I see kids running, that are 18 to 22 years old in college 
in troves, running out of the buildings. I think, man, if somebody somewhere could have had uh, the wherewithal or the leadership or the will to take all those people and fight against the one person who's destroying human life, they don't need a tool. They just need the will. They could have been fighting and stopping that shooter. Um, lastly, I think the active shooter, Virginia Tech, ultimately took his own life because police arrived, but also because a very few selective students who had the will, who had the understanding of how uh, dire their circumstance was, fought, and that led him to kill himself, which ended the onslaught, which he had a lot more ammunition to go um, before he killed, before he finished himself off. And I think you're exactly right. You know, again, it's, it's about predecision, putting yourself in that scenario. Imagine if someone goes into, you know, the, the food court of a mall and just starts shooting. Well, it's like there, there's a few hundred people in that concentrated area and the shooter can only point in one direction at one time. And it just takes a few people and really that one person that, that charges the shooter or does something that is like defensively offensive. If, if I can, you know, say such a thing that, that could really, you know, shake something loose but then there's those situations where seemingly there was nothing anyone could do. And I don't want to get too far off into conspiracy theory land, but you brought it up in the book. So if we go there, it's your fault. But in the <laughs> book, you discussed the Las Vegas mass shooting, uh, which as far as we're told, a single gunman opened fire from a hotel adjacent to a country music concert, killing 60 people and, and wounding over 400 and more. And I've never seen a tragic story less talked about after the first few days post the thing, then this story, Tucker Carlson's brought it up a few times. Like, Hey, why don't we know anything about this shooter? Why? Like, Oh, he just died. And there are people that were kind of breaking down the videos. Like, wait a minute. This doesn't sound like one firearm. This sounds like multiple, like none of this makes sense. There's so much about this story, Mike, that stinks. It stinks to high heaven, but I don't have the experience or the time to figure out why it stinks to high heaven. And collectively, as a populace, the United States has moved on from the largest mass shooting in the history of our country. And to people that think we have a mass shooting problem, this is your gold medal mass shooting. And yet we've done nothing to figure out exactly what in the hell happened. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so I know very intimately about that situation. I actually was sent pictures within a day of the inside of that room by guys that uh, were entered the room. I mean, one of my good friends uh, with Las Vegas uh, Metro um, was w entered the room on the initial breach with the SWAT guys. I mean, he was just a patrol officer uh, at the time. And look, that, that situation was a, a prime example of what we're getting wrong in, in this society, which is we're not an analyzing and assessing the motive the motive is the most important part of the story that helps us understand why these are tethered to psychological mental health dilemmas. And, and when we start understanding that in the education, we start to understand it's not a gun problem. It's not a tool problem. It's a psychological human being problem because this same person, by the way, the motive that was established was he was angry at the, um, at the, at the, uh, gambling facility. Yeah. He was angry at the, it's like, um, I don't know when you're angry at something, you like, you make a complaint, you don't, you don't do the biggest mass shooting in our history. You don't try to deliberately shoot into the crowd to get them to move to the jet fuel tanks, to hit the tanks explode as a secondary attack. 
and and do that as a protocol with no experience, by the way. Mm. Like, how do we not know who the hell the guy is, his backstory, where he got his training? Like, the firearms he used at the distance in which he used them was a not just a, a prey-and-spray type protocol. It was he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And so there's a whole bunch of holes in that story. But if, if you take all the active shootings, I mean, Allen, Texas, we know based on the body footage cameras that was just released, that one single officer who was a officer in the parking lot responded in a short period of time, took out the shooter, but we don't know anything about the shooter. Mm. This Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee, um, shot up by a trans person, goes into school, picks uh, the, the softer target over the hard target. Again, no motive. Helping establish the motive and understanding the backdrop and background of these persons would help us understand the complexity of the mindset, but also the awareness of what we need to look for in psychology and human beings around us as warning signs, uh, not just established by the CDC, like um, depressed and anxious. Yeah, welcome to the country because everybody's yeah. depressed. Um, let, let's focus more on the motives, the psychology, and have the conversation in depth instead of what we're doing is firing and forgetting, and then it's just a piece of evidence for the narrative for whatever political party is put is pushing their agendas that's the travesty what i would would say is one part of my responsibility i do prep life on youtube is is doing that breakdown but also talking about it constantly to get people educated and then doing things like this book but also you could do it on your own you know do the research dig in the weeds and start establishing like um why these things are happening like, I'm curious why people live and why people die in catastrophe. And mm. so should you if you're interested in this idea of being prepared. Well, I think is what, well, I opened up the can of worms. You fully dove in it. You went full send. But I'm going to slam the, the, the top back on this because there's a lot more that could be said there. But we're just going to have to kind of leave that there because, yes, there are a lot of things here that stink to high heaven. You've obviously talked to some people on the inside. None of it seems to make sense. And unfortunately, it seems a little bit foolish to even spend too much time thinking about it because it's like, what capacity do we have to actually figure those things out? But you do make the ultimate point, which is the better we can understand these motives, the better we can create formulas that can not, you know, pre-criminalize people, but like get an idea of like, okay, here's the same pattern, depressed kid outcasts on SSRIs, you know, uh, family uh, access to firearms and or money. And then you have this, this mass shooting where they kind of act out in that way. There are ways to mitigate those things. And some of us kind of give them short shrift. Speaking of short shrift, I do want to transition to a part of the book where you get into granular detail. And this is for all those, those people out there that they love their spreadsheets and they love setting everything out and getting ready for their camping trip or whatever. Let's talk about gear. And so we're going to mush a lot of this together and you can talk about it uh, however you'd like to talk about it. Because in the book, you talk about your EDC, your everyday carry. You talk about an ideal bug out bag. You get into survival gear for your vehicle, the type of vehicle, survival gear, gear for your home or your homestead, the use of tourniquets, all of that. A lot of that is going to be through Fieldcraft Survival as well, which is a lot of stuff that you guys sell and or you basically refer them to other places. But let's just talk about gear in general while understanding, guys, you have to buy the book to really get those lists and really dig into the reasons why. But talk to us about some of the stuff that is essential for us to have EDC, bug out bags, vehicles, the whole nine yards. It just boils down to gear, which equals capability uh, via your capacity. 
If you have more capacity, then technically you could have more gear. I mean, it, like on your person, you, you're limited. If you have a, a fanny pack, a purse, um, if you have a car, if you have a home, you just have more space for more gear. The important component about gear uh, across the board is often it is the enabler or the facilitator to success and survival. I mean, it's hard to stop the bleed with your belt. But can you do it? Yes, you can. But why would you want to when you could just have the the tool, right? Have the have the equipment, and and often people forget that a lot of the gear that, especially in this world of preparedness, that we need, when we need it, we need it now. We don't need it like we don't need the aid bag because um, it's in our trunk and we're flipped upside down, uh, hanging from our seatbelt, bleeding out our femoral. We need it like in our lap, yeah. you know, and a lot of people uh, don't think about gear that way. I always think about gear as ready, readily accessible. So if it's, if it's a tourniquet and you can't reach your hand out in your vehicle from your steering wheel and grab it, well, then what good is the gear? Because we're planning for the worst case scenario, which is again, you're flipped upside down in the ditch trying to stop the bleed. So, um, that, that's the perspective on gear. We break it out into EDC mobility and homestead, which is the scale of capacity. And what I always tell people is if you have a tourniquet on your person, you should have a ambulance in your vehicle and your house should be a small hospital, right? Mm-hmm. You should have higher upgraded equipment, which means more capability to treat the wound. If I could stop the bleed with a tourniquet, well, then I could do sutures and antibiotics in my home. That is that is how I thought about um, this side of gear when the first time I went to a fire base in the middle of Afghanistan and it was just us, like we had to have the, the fuel runs. I mean, we had fuel runs that were dropped in blivets of fuel to charge the generators. We had, we, we literally sourced the water off the Hindu Kush off a waterfall into a water truck to fill up our, our bladders and our, our containers to provide water to our fire base. We, we sanitized the water ourselves with chlorine dioxide. So when you think about where we're at now, everything we have is outsourced. My, like right now, Kyle, this is, this is actually true. <laughs> Yesterday, my water went out. And I, I, I live off of a historical pump that has been generationally handed down that seven families use. I have no water for three days. Mm. Yesterday, in a freak like twister, that never touched the ground, so just twirling air, just high high winds. A oak tree that I estimate to be about thirty years old fell on the back deck of my house. So between in the last forty eight hours, I, I, I like before I was on here, I was showering using a um, a pre charged because I have electricity hmm. pre charged pump. It's called a uh, a rinse kit. And I had it in my tub and I was, it, it, it charges and it has a, a, a electric pump. And I was using that shower thing. I would, I spray myself off, lathered up and then rinse myself off. And my shower was done. And I was like, well, that sucks. Cause I'm not used to taking my, you know, five minute hot shower followed by three minutes of cold, but I got the cold knocked out. It's like, oh, I can't flush the shitter. So now I got to have I go out to my pump and I, I pump water because I still have water rights on this property and I fill up a jug and that's by the toilet. And I'm like, oh, this kind of feels like Afghanistan. It's kind of fun. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I'm back to the old ways. But we have to adapt 
and and the equipment and its components and its capability in you is the way that you adapt. You know, it, like you have to have all the things. The great thing about this journey of preparedness is taking a skill set like stopping the bleed and filling the gaps with equipment and training is a wonderful process. You, you look at homesteading, um, doing a greenhouse and growing your own food and doing that with your family. That's an amazing experience. It's not just about the equipment and the capability. It's about the process and bringing your family along for the ride. I appreciate you getting into that detail because, again, guys, for some of you that were looking for him to just detail a list, it's in the book, Prepared. It's in the show notes. So you guys should get that because there were some things that I've never even thought about that were so like, God, duh, you idiot. You definitely need that in your truck. But one thing that that you talked about in the book as well is the vehicles and the types of vehicles and all that. But there was one thing, and maybe it's because I'm stupid and didn't, didn't catch it as I was reading, but I, I always wonder about gasoline. And so you have these people that have these these bug out vehicles or maybe they're trying to decide do I have a bug out truck or a bug out motorcycle or something like that. But it's like in that real fall of civilization situation where there's gas stations are shut down or everybody made a run on gas. Like where are you getting this gas? And if you have to move from one homestead to a secondary homestead or you got to move from here or there or something like that, like where's the gas coming from to run all this stuff? Yeah, that's an important question. And, and it has to do a lot with supply chain breakdowns and redundancy and a lot of people right now have the rig but they don't have the gas which right fuels well i think you mentioned having a hundred thousand dollar you know ford raptor but you know an eighth of a tank of gas it's like that's not going to do you very well that's your capability right it, uh i experienced this in several countries every third world country by the way deals with this issue at the lack of gas yeah so say number one is have redundancy built into your plan like uh, if you have a bug out rig, have a back bike attached to it, right? Have a, have a rucksack attached to it so you could, I mean, our mobility bag was designed to take off the panel back off the back of your seat and put it on your back. Mm. Because if you displace from your vehicle, because there's a likelihood in a bug out that you would eventually run out of fuel, you're going to have to get on, get out on foot with the capability that you still have in equipment. Um I have redundancy built in in all the things. I have the mountain bikes. I have the motorcycles. I have all the all the stuff. But if, even if you say, I mean, this is crazy because I did this. I, I said, hey, look at electrical electric vehicles as a potential option, and people lost their crap, man. Because there's a <laughs> yeah. it, there's a very guns, right? It's a, it's very political, and I'm like, guys, I, I don't mean buy an electric vehicle and burn your uh, gas vehicles to the ground. I mean have redundancy built into your pace plan. Primary alternate contingency and emergency. All my vehicles, um, I have a lot of vehicles, but most of them um, are just basic vehicles. Have an EMP-proof vehicle that's carbureted, that doesn't depend on any electric um, components to basically get that thing to run down the road. Um, I stockpile fuel. Um, I, I, am, I, I also keep all my vehicles above half a tank. But I stockpile fuel and I have storage containers either in rotopacks and the old jerry cans or in extended fuel tanks. I mean, I can go I can go 2,000 miles in my pickup truck with the fuel that I have on board because I have a 35-gallon standard tank and a 75-gallon in-bed in tank. So I have 100-plus gallons, on, which is very easy for me to be able to get long extended ranges uh, if I need to be. Think about these things because your vehicle is a dead weight if you run out of gas and it and it offers absolutely nothing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing that people think about. They're thinking about the next thing they can add to their truck, the next attachment, the next this, the next that. And it's just like, there are practical things here. Like I, I read a survivalist book a while ago. It was like this handbook. And it was like what most people think survivalism is. And it was a bunch of firearms, a bunch of ammunition and a little bit of medication, a little bit of food. And it's like, nah, bro, you need like the exact opposite of that. Because yeah, if you you don't want to go Winchester if you're fighting for your homestead. Like you definitely don't want that to happen. But the odds of you starving to death first or getting some sort of infection that you can't treat is probably a little bit higher than some zombie army coming over on the other side of the hill from you. Um, there was another thing that I found interesting in the book that I was kind of reading as I was trying to be more detailed in my research. So you mentioned religion a few times. You mentioned religious convictions in the book, and you even quote scripture, albeit probably accidentally. You say, if iron sharpens iron, how do you get hardened when you have when you've been forged in cotton candy, which is a hilarious quote, by the way, but obviously iron sharpens iron. That's Proverbs 27, 17. And as I was kind of making my highlights and getting ready, I was like, I don't know that I've ever heard you talk about religion in detail or talk about your, your, your faith or any of those types of things. So if you were to basically categorize your religious conviction, what would you say you have? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Christian non-denominational. I've been that way since, I guess, since the army asked me when I was 17, what's your religion? And that was an option that was blocked out. I grew up very religious. Uh, I grew up in a, a Baptist home in, in North Carolina, which is, um, you know, a Southern Baptist is pretty religious when it comes to conviction, when it comes to values, when it comes to judgment. And I saw a lot of that across the board. And so, yeah, Christian non-denominational with no direct affiliation to any. I mean, my backyard is 61% LDS um, yeah. Mormon. And they have an amazing story of triumph and overcoming adversity. And mo a lot of my employees are also from LDS. Um, but I'll never be that, but I appreciate their values. But uh, I'm Christian, non-denominational. Okay. And so in terms of how particularly you live that out, because, you know, I've, I've been around Christian. I was born in Oklahoma, Mike. And so everyone's a Christian because we were born here. Right. And so you just kind of go to church and you can't like trip and fall and not elbow the wall of a, of a church kind of a thing. And so I'm curious how, how you live out your conviction, because what I've noticed with uh, several people that are kind of, you know, in the spec ops wor world or maybe they're first responders or maybe they're fighters or construction workers. These guys are pretty rough dudes and they go to churches. And this is part of the reason why we started Undaunted Life is they go to churches and they don't feel comfortable. They feel like, okay, this is where the godly men hang out, but I'm going to go back and hang out with all my manly men friends because apparently those two things don't connect. So for you, I guess, how do you live out your faith? Would you say it's more just kind of like generic Christianity or is it like true discipleship of Jesus? How do you live it out in community? I know there's a lot of questions there, but I just wanted to tee you up to go wherever you wanted. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Uh, I, I see this across the board and I've, I've recently seen guys like Sean Ryan discover Christ and uh, Eddie uh, Eddie uh, Penny same yeah. same thing and and I think full circle most people find their way back and, and that's a good thing I I think a lot of the stuff that I do and and the way I live is based off of my experiences where it was just shoved down my throat and it's like yeah. and it, I, people were trying to push their religion on me even. Even being overseas in mostly Muslim countries, I, I saw that. And look, I, I I live those values, but also when I'm bringing community together, I hate to say I preach, but when I talk about preparedness, 
every time I talk about preparedness, there's hundreds of people that are I'm talking to. And that for me, um, I don't take lightly because to be able to influence people in person and then talk to them about preparedness is one aspect, but I feel a responsibility. I'd always do mention God, but I, I do it. I do so in a very passive way because I don't want to directly, you know, force my values or my religion on other people. So I'm, I'm respectful that way. But I also think, you know, part of the reason why guys don't go to church that are from my background is because we feel a little disaffected and mm. we, we know the evil of men. And so when you see that side of people, when you, when you can see through the veil, I've, I've literally been in churches where I'm like, I need to find a good church. And I've been to a few churches. And I'm like, this is not a place for me. And we talked about it earlier in the podcast. I, I actually thought about starting my own church, like a cowboy church. Hmm. And, and that whole idea is really amazing because it's like, hey, we're not going to do the glitz and glamour. It's not about keeping up with the Kardashians. It's about uh, keeping up with the community. And you don't need all the fancy. And um, it's something I thought about. My my grandma once had a dream that uh, I, I ended the last phase of my life uh, being a preacher and my mom's always wanted me to go down that route. She knows uh, I was very into religion. So maybe that's something that I'll, I'll do later because I feel like it's needed, uh, but just in a different way. Well, I appreciate you going into all that detail. And um, I can't really talk about it right now, but I'll talk to you off air about some stuff that I have kind of in the works towards that end. Because the, the problem that we see is most men's, most churches either don't focus on men at all. So that's category one. Category two is they try to have a men's ministry, but it devolves into, hey, once a year, we'll bring in some guy from the Nature Channel to come and talk and we'll have a chili cook off and then that's it for the next 364 days. And then there's that third category, which there are very, very few churches in it. It's where their church from top to bottom is man friendly. Right. So from the key, the songs are sung in to the, the pastor on stage and the things he's talking about, they're going after the hearts of men, as opposed to putting ne blinking neon signs outside to say, Hey, we're just here for the women and children and the men, you know, the soft, you know, effeminate men. So I've got some stuff in the works there, but <clears throat> we've made it all the way through this conversation. We've talked about everything and we haven't really talked about field craft. Okay. So that's what you founded and you're the CEO. And so all this stuff we're talking about guys, the stuff in the prepared book, preparedness, the gear, all of that, it basically comes as an outworking of what you do with field craft survival. I think most people at this point know what field craft survival is, but if you could encapsulate what you guys offer right now, but then also, I know you're a forward thinking guy and you, you mentioned something to me earlier off air where it's like, okay, I think y'all have some really cool things coming in the future. So what do y'all do? What do you do right now? And then what does the future look like for Fieldcraft? Yeah, thanks for that. It's um, education, training, and equipment is is primarily what we're covering down on, which is which is everything, by the way. We're we're trying to provide that. I mean, education as a category is like, hey, we want to provide value, but not having to charge people money to provide that value. I mean, that's our one of our value propositions is a lot of the education that we do, the majority of the education we do is free. That's podcasts, that's YouTube, that's all the things. And um, the education category also segments into something that we're launching very soon. And in fact, by the time you hear this, it's likely out. Um, if not out, you can go to philcraftsurvival.com and link into it. Um, the hyperlink, the web version is available, but it's our application. I mean, I've been working on this app for really since I started the company, it's been an idea 
but about three years working on it um, constantly, where we even outboarded all of our education to an LMS, like a learning management system that's uh, college-based, but the platform failed to meet the user interface that we needed for teaching everything from family preparedness, you know, how to prepare your family for a, a, a house fire, all the way to self-defense, all the way to primitive survival. So we offloaded on that. Um, it didn't work out. Then we decided to, to do it ourselves. And that was a two-year journey. And so we're at, we're at the end of that two-year journey. It's actually already built. We have about 100 hours of content from all the players. Amber, Family Preparedness, Kevin Estella, Primitive Survival, Mike Hernandez, Mobility, and uh, Casey Hildreth, all the tactical stuff. Um, and I'll be on there as well. Um, that launched should start the journey for people. And then I encourage everybody who gets education because you can't learn all the things unless you're interacting it with yourself. Like if you're doing primitive survival and you're not willing to actually get the bow drill out and do the thing, well, then come out and train with us. Um, we have training every single weekend, four to six uh, different states uh, throughout the country, for everything from primitive survival to stop the bleed to training with me and self-defense. And then um, the other category is equipment. Now, the hardest component of my business, which is the way that we grow, is products. Um, it's hard to scale service, especially mm -hmm. because it leans and depends on people and, and more people, more problems, generally speaking. So products, everything from loadout gear to the mobility stuff that we talked about, um, first aid equipment, um, even, even primitive survival stuff, books, the list goes on. Um, I hope to be in Bass Pro, which is a goal of mine. Uh, we, we, we've kind of been doing the dance with them for a while. We hope to be in there by the end of the year. Um, if not signed off, ready to go into the next year uh, in Bass Pro Cabela's. So I, I want to be able to offer all this stuff um, countrywide. We have a very small niche, very small group. Most people kind of know who we are, but we want to get into the households of people who have no clue who we are. We'll make sure to have you on around this time next year, whenever you're doing that and you're spreading your, uh, your new, your good news all over the place. And just to make sure is the name of the app Fieldcraft survival. So by the time they, they go to their app store, is that with where they can find it? It is. And it's like everywhere you can find an app, okay. like Roku, Samsung, Apple, iOS, all the things. Perfect. So guys, again, you can route there through his website that will be there in the show notes as well. But dude, We've covered a lot of ground. There's more questions to be asked, but we don't have enough time to get to everything. That is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I just want to say thanks for the opportunity to have me on. And uh, I just hope this uh, book and all the things that we talked about, even if it's not us, uh, somehow, some way plants the seed and people are like, yeah, I think I'm interested in this field and that you make it a lifestyle and not a hobby. Uh, I hope I hope people do that. Absolutely. Amen. Mike Glover, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Mike Glover. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got two links for you today. I've got a link to the Fieldcraft Survival website so you can check out their courses and their gear. And also a link to where you can buy his new book, Prepared, a Manuals for Surviving Worst Case Scenarios. 
Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.